Hey everyone, welcome to Folds and Curves. I'm your host, Mokash Kush. Today's guest is Sam Bott. Um, Sam is a pharmacist, and he's also someone that was in pharmacy school a few years ahead of me, so I know him from school. And Sam was actually one of the people who introduced me to the biotech industry and got me interested in it in the first place. Uh, and that's because him and some other colleagues started a biotech investment fantasy league in school where you basically made up a portfolio of biotech companies and whoever had the best performing portfolio um, won some prizes. And I really enjoyed this. It really was educational more so than, um, you know, just about having the highest returns in your portfolio. I thought it was really educational and was my first foray into learning about the future of medicine, as people often say. Um, but yeah, aside from, from that part of Sam, which makes him really interesting in, in that respect, he just really understands the market. Um, and so one example of that is his, his last job, which is where he was a consultant at IQVIA working on market access strategy. And that's the focus of today's interview. Although he's also currently a medical outcomes liaison at Akibia Therapeutics, which is a pretty interesting company working on anemia for CKD and have some pretty interesting therapies in the pipeline for that. Um, so without further ado, let's get started. Please check out the show notes for the relevant links for Sam. Okay, Sam, thanks for joining me. Um, let's just jump right in. I wanted to get your take on what the term market access means in pharma. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me, Mo. Uh, this is a really cool podcast. So uh, thanks again for having me. Um, so market access is, is a pretty like pretty strange term. Uh, and I think it's one of those terms where if you ask, you know, 10 people what it is, you're going to get 10 different answers um, because it's just kind of this ever evolving field in this space. Um, so what it means to me is essentially if you boil it down, um, it's just reducing any barriers for patients to get onto therapy. And that's kind of like the simplistic terms of what it means. Um, if you ask other people what it means, they may say, um, you know, it, it's something to do with insurance. You know, we're going to deal with like formularies. We're going to deal with co-pay cards. We're going to deal with patient assistance programs. Um, but like, if you boil all of those programs down, if you look at formularies, patient access programs, um, you know, getting HCPs to understand what the drug is all about, what you're doing at the end of the day is just making it easier for patients to get onto therapy, um, be it, you know, cheaper costs for their insurance or cheaper costs to the pharmacy. Um, that's what it all boils down to. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's sort of like the overarching goal is to get uh, patients on therapy easier. Um, I think you mentioned some of the like ways in which that's done. Um, and I guess formularies in, in hospitals, is this, uh, is this fall under the umbrella of market access? So it totally does. Um, I, I think that you know, again, if you if you talk to different people, some people would say, you know, like insurance companies, PBMs, payers, like those are in our wheelhouse um, and they don't really look at these other areas. But I, I think what you'll find is these other more like obscure areas of access um, are definitely growing in the space. So, you know, particularly in the IDN space, so integrated delivery networks, um, they're going to have their own ways of looking at how to manage drug. Um, and, you know, to your point with like hospital formularies, it, it's one of those areas that I don't think companies really put enough focus into sometimes, but that's an area where, 
you know, these people are going to have to make decisions on what drugs to use for patients. And ultimately, if you can provide them with the education necessary, if you can get in there and get the, the deals to work um, to make it favorable for them to be able to use your product, um, that's an area of access that definitely needs to be addressed. And so, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, hospital formularies do touch into that market access space. Okay. Okay, great. So um, I guess it, I imagine that this sort of is where value and health outcomes sort of falls into the market access area. Um, it's, I don't actually know what IDNs are. Is that like health systems, basically like large health systems, or is it different from that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can think of, um, you know, right in your own backyard, uh, UPMC is kind of a, a pretty famous IDN uh, just because they've kind of, you know, captured all the different sections of the market going all the way from, you know, having patients in the hospital to the care delivery in the outpatient setting to the pharmacy to the health, you know, the health insurance, you know, they have health like UPMC uh, health plan. So you have all these different aspects that are going on in this health ecosystem. Um, and if you can kind of control all of those, you're, you know, for the most part, an IDN. Yeah. So, so how do these IDNs sort of make decisions um, regarding what drugs they want their patients on and, and uh, what drugs that they want uh, at certain prioritizations and at lower priorities? Um, can you just kind of give some insight into how these IDNs think about um, the value of a, of a drug and, and how much they want to pay for it and if they want to use it at all? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think, again, it's one of those things of depending on what IDN you're talking to, um, you're going to get a different answer. And you know, some of them might not want to tell you what their answer is uh, <laughs> for the sole fact that it's, it's money. Um, so if you look at the, the spectrum, you know, you're going to get people on that spectrum that care a lot about the money. So, you know, they're going to be really focused on their bottom line and what drugs we can get for the cheapest that does the job that it intends to do. Uh, you know, somewhere in the middle, you're going to get people that are going to make the decisions, you know, mostly based off of money, but then they're going to look at the clinical aspect and say, you know, what's the cost benefit of this? You know, are we getting the clinical outcomes that we want for the money that we're paying? On the far side, you might even get a few people, a few unicorns of, of IDNs and other sort of like health payers out there that make decisions more based off of the clinical outcomes you get. And, you know, when I say unicorns, like these people are not typically common. Uh, you know, a lot of what you'll find is kind of like a, a bell curve look for these, uh, the spectrum going on where like a lot of people are in the middle where they're making decisions based off both, you know, money and the outcomes that you're gonna get. And that's really where that HEOR, or Health Economics and Outcomes Research, um, that's really where that falls in and why it's so valuable to these health systems because they use that information to be able to prioritize what drugs you have, you know, what works best. And so that's kind of, that's kind of how decisions are made in there. Um, and that like really oversimplifies things. I, I wanna mm -hmm. point that out as well. Um, it's a very complicated process. Um, and a lot of times it takes months and months and months to decide. Um, so I don't want to give the air that it's, a, you know, a very simplistic process, but you know, that's kind of how they make decisions there. Gotcha. Um, and so I guess like what makes it, uh, more complicated? Is it, is it just that there's not black and white answers and it requires like really thoughtful analysis or is there some sort of uh, bureaucracy and, and difficulty in actually reaching the right people to get the information across? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, definitely both. So 
I mean, if you think about, you know, a health system or you can, in this example, just like a hospital trying to figure out, you know, what drugs they want to use, you know, you have to think to yourself that, you know, it's, it's not just one drug in there, right? You know, we're looking at a couple of different drugs and that's like a, probably a small class that we're thinking of here. So if you're going to take the time to evaluate all of these different therapies, you have to have people dedicated to doing that. Um, or you have to, you know, work with some sort of consulting firm, or you have to work with the company to get the data that you want to get. Um, once you get to the point where you actually can get the data, which kind of takes some time to get all that data straightened out, um, then you have to evaluate it. And so you're going to have to go through like pharmacy and therapeutics um, groups or P&T groups, as you'll hear them pretty frequently. So it's basically like the formulary decision makers of the hospital or the IDN. And so that can be its own process where, you know, you go through, you talk about it, you start to make debates on either side of what's going to work, what's not going to work. You're going to have key stakeholders you have to consider as well. So, I mean, you can be a part of this P&T group and make these decisions, but if you, you know, tell the physicians in your IDN or your hospital, you know, this is what we're going to use. And 90% of them go, that's not what we want to use these don't work on our patients, then, you know, you've made a decision without even considering the key stakeholders of the system, which is not the best way to do it. Um, yeah. So it is, it's very much like an iterative process of working with your stakeholders, getting the data, analyzing it, working with the groups, and then implementing protocols and algorithms to be able to actually get these in the system and get them working. Um, and particularly, you know, now in the modern era where everything is digital, um, you know, you have to work with like your, your electronic medical record. Um, a lot of the times, you know, if you're in a health system and you're a physician and you want to prescribe a certain drug, um, you might try to prescribe it online um, or through the system and it'll tell you, you know, that's not the right drug. You know, our formulary preferred is actually mm -hmm. this. Um, and so you have to think that, you know, after all this PNT gets pushed through, there has to be another team on the back end that's doing all the implementation for this information for, you know, every class of drug out there that they're concerned about. So that's kind of why, you know, these processes tend to take time. It's just because yeah. it's a lot of man hours. It's a lot of decisions to make. And there's a lot of stakeholders that can be, you know, very angry <laughs> if you don't make the right decisions. Yeah. And so that's, you know, providers, patients, you know, health insurers, you know, it, it's an ecosystem when you break it down. So you got to make sure that everyone is at least agreeable. Um, I don't think you're ever going to get to the point where everyone is happy, but you have to get to the point where everyone is at least agreeable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy you brought up the, the implementation and like the uh, electronic prescribing system aspect of it. Um, because I think that's like one of those, it's an example of an often sort of forgotten thing, which is that everything in healthcare is difficult to implement. Um, I mean, if you've ever worked with one of these systems, um, everything's trying to nudge you in one direction. And then you have um, like alert fatigue where you just kind of hit skip because it's alerting you too much and it starts to lose its meaning. And it's like this complicated network of legitimate information technology and good safety measures, um, but also like these behavioral, um, you know, these behavioral aspects that are just kind of difficult to plan ahead for. And you sort of just have to get the, the right the right uh kind of like goldilocks of the not too much not too little <laughs> um no exactly yeah yeah so uh, i'm curious 
well, on a couple things, but uh, I'll start with um, this. Like you mentioned, this data that you you want to get is this um, is this data generated outside of sort of this like pivotal uh, clinical trial that gets a drug approved? Is, are these kind of like other trials, not the main um, you know phase three large study, or can it be weaved into that? Um, how does that normally look? The, I'm, I'm talking about health economics and outcomes research now. Um, is this post-marketing usually? Yeah, so I think a lot of people tend to think that HUR tends to be more like post-marketing. Mm -hmm. um, but what it really is, is, is kind of just um, through the life cycle of the product. And you kind of have like different studies that you tend to want to do at different phases in the product's life cycle. So, you know, I think what we're like, what we would be considering with more of like a formulary decision for like a hospital ID and something like that. We're thinking more of that like peri-launch, post-launch phase where you have a little bit of information about, you know, what is this drug going to cost? What are the costs that we should consider? And how are these going to affect our system? So when we think about those sort of studies and trials and things like that, you know, a lot of times they're going to look at sort of like the totality of the data. So they're going to look at those pivotal trials and they're going to consider those, but they're also going to want to consider any sort of, you know, post hoc analyses that they can do. So a lot of the times companies will take, you know, their pivotal phase three trial and they'll, you know, look at the effects compared to whatever, you know, other drug they compared it to, or they'll do some sort of a meta analysis to understand, you know, if we can get these outcomes, you know, how much cost will we be saving compared to the competitor or the standard of care on the market? And so, you know, once you get a chance to get the outcomes and assign costs to them, that's kind of like the data that you want to get there. And that's exactly what a hospital IDN payer, like literally any sort of, um, you know, decision maker that has a formulary or a protocol or an algorithm, that's what they're going to use to be able to figure out, you know, if we implement this drug, and it gets this sort of market share in our hospital or in our system, is it gonna be a net positive or is it gonna be a net negative on our budget? Okay, gotcha. So you know, that's that's interesting. I've sort of, um, just in my experience, I've, I've heard sort of the economic argument for certain drugs, which is that it's not necessarily cheaper, but it can avoid some downstream surgery. It can, um, maybe it reduces the, you know, likelihood of some terrible side effect that's super expensive to fix. Um, and so therefore it's net positive on your budget because it'll reduce the amount of, you know, readmissions or, or something like that. Um, do you find that payers are receptive to, to that kind of, um, I guess, logic where you pay more upfront for savings downstream or, or is there more of like a short, uh, uh, I guess, short-term mindset among payers? Yeah. So, I mean, before I, I give you my take on it, I'm, I'm going to kind of walk you through um, sort of like a historical precedent on this sort of thing. Um, it, it might be something you're familiar with, but, you know, back in what, 2014, um, but Savaldi launched for hepatitis C. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that is sort of like this golden child of like health economics and outcomes and research data where, you know, they're able to cure disease and they're able to prevent future um, you know, liver transplant and liver failure. So, you know, they have this very much like Goldilocks data to show you with the idea that these are going to cost upwards of $100,000 per treatment. Right. So, you know, what we can take away 
from that historical precedent ended up being that, you know, pairs were really receptive to it, mm-hmm. but because they cost a lot up front, they really limited the implementation because at the end of the day, they do only have a set pool of money to work with. Sure. And if they were to cure, you know, every hepatitis C patient they had, they would all go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, so just things to keep in mind. And so I think with that being said, you know, when we talk to payers, when we talk to PBMs, I think that, you know, it really depends on who you've talked to in these organizations. You know, they're not kind of this like monolithic organization. Um, and this is kind of like an idea that I had in school is that, you know, United Health is just United Health. Um, mm-hmm. But really, United Health is, is made up of, you know, the spectrum of different people that work there, be it more, you know, actuarial business minded people, or be it more like clinical advisor type people. And they all want to know about the drugs that are going to get added on to, you know, the company's formulary. And so if you talk to, you know, the clinical advisors that typically tend to be, you know, physicians, like pharmacists, nurses, they're going to want to really care about that, that clinical aspect of it, the outcomes. And if you talk to more of the actuarial people, you know, their first question is going to be, how much is this drug going to cost? How many patients are going to be on it per year? And so they're already doing that calculation in their mind of, you know, how is this going to mess with our bottom line? How is this going to mess with our, you know, per member per month cost? Um, But the cool thing is that at the end of the day, when they're making decisions, they tend to make them together. So you have more of the business-minded actuarial people coming to the table. You have more of the clinical group coming into the table. They're all kind of debating that different aspect. Um, and I would definitely say that when it comes to the decisions that are made, they tend to lean more toward the business actuarial aspects. Um, so if you, you know, if you have brilliant HEOR data and you show that, um, but at the same time, you know, your cost might be a little high, chances are it's probably not going to pan out too well for you. Unfortunately, I think we're definitely moving in the direction where HEOR is taking more of a seat at the table. Um, and payers PBMs are, you know, more receptive to that data. But I think right now, um, you know, it's really about these hard, hard outcomes. And if you have anything on the back end, say something like a quality of life indicator or something like that, that's definitely more of like a, a cherry on top at the present, gotcha. unfortunately. That's interesting. Um, I like how you um, describe that these, these large organizations are, are actually kind of made up of of uh, people. <laughs> um, and I, cause that was one of my questions. I was, I'm just genuinely curious, like who is typically the counterparty in these kind of conversations? Is it a business person? Is it a doctor? Um, sounds like it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, but there is going to, at the end of the day, always be that like, uh, you know, profit or business prerogative. Um, uh, but um, I, I am kind of, I did want to dive a little bit deeper into these hard outcomes you describe are, are these things like, you know, uh, cardiovascular events or like, you know, the typical clinical outcomes that you think of when you think about does a drug work or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you'll hear the term like hard outcomes thrown around a lot, particularly in the outcomes or, you know, HEOR or access space. And what these tend to be are things that are going to save the payer, the PBM money. Okay. Um, so these are things that you can directly show them and you can say, you know, if I give you drug X, which costs $100 a year, I'm going to save you $1,000 a year in hospitalizations alone. And so that's kind of like the idea behind this whole, 
hard outcomes approach. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the part where it gets really interesting is that we kind of live in a fragmented ecosystem. So not everyone cares about everything. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of the time, if you're doing any sort of negotiation for drug benefit, you're going to be dealing with a pharmacy benefit manager. So a PBM, as you'll hear them all the time. And the hard part about this is that they, you know, there's probably what, four to five of them that are making up 80 to 90% of the market share in this Mm -hmm. PBM business. So you're going to be working with them. They have great leverage. They're going to get great costs for their plans, but they have a different set of interests than the plans do because the plans are going to be paying them regardless. And they're going to be negotiating the benefit for the drug. But if you come to a PBM and you say, hey, I have this drug, it costs $100, but it'll reduce hospitalizations by $1,000 per year. Then the PBM says, why do I care? I don't manage medical benefits. Mm. So to them, it's very much a, you know, how can we minimize drug costs and can we have a drug that minimizes the use of other drugs? So it, it's kind of this idea, and that's why it's, it's so complicated and fragmented yeah. and interesting and ripe for opportunity um, because the incentives are so disaligned in some opportunities. So right. you know, if you went to a health plan and told them, I can save you $1,000, of course they're going to care. But they're not negotiating the drug benefit most of the time. The PBM. So that's exactly. So that's where it gets so interesting with negotiations and HEOR data. Yeah. So uh, I just want to make sure I'm, <laughs> this is funny because this is a topic that is like so confusing, no matter how many times you read about it. I'm, that's why I'm happy to talk to you about <laughs> it because it's more clarifying for me. Um, the, does, so the PBM, you know, gets paid by the insurer um, on the basis of how much drug spend they save the insurer. Is, is that what it sounds like? So they're going to pay, you know, based in it, it. I don't want to oversimplify this by any means because there yeah. are different sort of like contractual mechanisms that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they're going to basically be paying some sort of like yearly fee. We'll, we'll call it that. And so it's basically like a per member sort of fee that they're going to be paying to the PBM. So the money is flowing to the PBM with the expectation that, you know, the PBM is going to negotiate you know, these drug costs and get a much reduced cost from like the list price. So, you know, whenever you see these like hyperinflated list prices, um, that's not what the PBM is paying by any means. And oftentimes it's like a 50 or 60% reduction. And if you look in like really commoditized disease states, like uh, diabetes for insulin, you're talking about like 70, 80% like discounts off of the list price. Um, so that's kind of the expectation for the plan to the PBM is that they're going to get these crazy discounts and they're going to pass along savings for the most part to the plan. Um, but what the PBM, again, doesn't really care about is what are these hard outcomes doing to the plan members? Mm-hmm. So the, the plan is able to say, you know, PBM X was able to get us a great deal on this drug, but PBM X never really cared about, you know, what are the hard outcomes on that drug to the plan? They kind of care about, you know, what's the bottom line here? What can we work with? Gotcha. Um, Does that sort of incentive structure, um, 
you know, how does that affect the way that the um, drug manufacturer uh, negotiates with the PBM as far as like their list price and their discounted price? I sort of heard an argument before that that incentive structure that you described um, can sometimes cause like drug manufacturers to have to inflate their prices only to, to like knowingly discount them later. Um, and I like don't understand this at all. So I'm just, is that accurate <laughs> in any way? Yeah, no, so that, that's completely accurate. Um, and so what I would say there is that we kind of live in this system right now where mm -hmm. a lot of the revenue that comes to PBMs are going to come in the form of manufacturer discounts. Okay. So I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it's not a discount in a traditional discount sense. Um, so if I was going to sell you a drug for $100 and you said, no, I'm going to take that for $10, um, you know, I think the, the most appropriate thing for me to do would be to say, okay, it costs $10, just give me $10 and I'll yeah. give you the drug. Um, but that's not actually how it works in the PBM space. Mm -hmm. So how it works is actually a rebate. And so I think that a lot of our generation doesn't really know like what rebates are, but I think that a lot of like older products, um, if you bought them, they would offer like a rebate or something like that. And so what it really means is that you're getting money back later. So you're not actually getting money at like the point of sale. And so what that drives is that, you know, PBM X is going to get that drug. They're going to pay a hundred dollars for it. But, you know, at the end of the quarter, they're going to get back $90 from the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is they, they are actually getting money in their pocket and then they're kind of passing along some of the costs of the plan. Um, so they're getting a lot of revenue to be able to fund their business. And so we live in a system right now that really incentivizes those high list price, high discount products because they pass so much revenue along to the PBMs. But, we are moving, uh, thankfully, into a system that's a little bit more equitable to products with list prices and discount products or discount prices that are kind of like more in line with what we would expect. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think if we go back to this example of hepatitis C again, you can kind of see these like misaligned incentives at play um, because you have drugs like Harvonia out there, which is you know a blockbuster HCV product. Um, high list, high discount, um, very popular with PBM. Mm -hmm. um, and then AbbVie comes along and releases Maverick. So Maverick was, you know, this product that was competing with, you know, Harvoni, which was, you know, $90,000 list and maybe like 50, 40, $30,000 after discount. So Maverick was a list price of about $30,000. And that's what they offered. So they basically offered this, you know, we're going to have this drug. It's going to be a list of $30,000 and we're not going to discount it. Take it or leave it. And what ended up happening in this whole, you know, case study is that they got very, very little uptake from PBMs right away. And I think the first year after they released Express Scripts, which is one of the biggest PBMs out there, um, actually excluded them from formulary. So they basically said, you know, we're not getting any rebate from you. We don't want you on formulary. We don't want you to be used by our physicians. No one on our plan, we're not gonna use you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's you know, a great example of, of what happens when you try to be a little bit cavalier 
um, in a system that is so entrenched in a certain misaligned way of working. Um, and what I would say is, is kind of moving forward, you're, you're kind of seeing a little bit more of these like transparent PBMs is kind of what they want to be viewed as. And so these PBMs are definitely more, you know, they're getting fees for data, um, you know, flat rate fees for different sort of contracting for the plans. And they're not actually taking in a lot of money from rebates. So this, I think, is where we're going to start to see the industry move over time is that PBMs are not going to be driven by rebates and more so just driven by flat rate fees. Okay. And I think that that will create a system that will kind of get to tamper down this bubble that we have of this, like, um, and you'll hear this phrase or, you know, saying every now and again, but it's called the growth to net bubble. Um, okay. And basically what it means is that we're just in this bubble right now where you see these super inflated list prices, but when you break it down, you know, it's maybe a fifth of the actual cost is what okay. the drug truly costs. Um, so we are in the midst of this like growth to net bubble. And I think that PBMs kind of moving their incentives away from that high list, high discount will push us into a more equitable place for everyone when it comes to healthcare, particularly because, you know, obviously the PBMs are paying that discounted price. But if you're a patient going to the pharmacy to pick up one of these, you know, super inflated growth to net drugs, um, your coinsurance is going to be based on that list price not the discount price. Gotcha. So the, the so like the, you, your out-of-pocket costs might not necessarily go down with that discount, with those discounts going up, right? Like as the patient. Exactly. Yeah, the, the PBM is going to negotiate that rate. They're going to pass some of the savings along to their plans. But if you come to pick up that drug that's $100 and you have a 20% coinsurance, particularly if you're on you know a specialty tier for that particular mm -hmm. drug, um, then you're going to be paying... $20. And if that drug is $10,000, then you're going to be paying $2,000. Um, even if yeah. the PBM is only paying $1,000 for that $10,000 product. And that's kind of where we get into the situation of, you know, there are a lot of things that are kind of at foul when it comes to the access space. And that's, again, why I mentioned that it's just kind of like ripe for opportunity to mm -hmm. disrupt these, these systems that are at play right now. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's um yeah that's unfortunate that that situation you described i mean the patient kind of gets like left with the, their hand out um but um I, you mentioned this example of of Mavaret sort of like getting i forget what the formulary was but but getting kicked off of a plan um for for that pricing um scheme and i think i kind of had an aha moment when someone just described to me like the sheer size of, of some of these these networks or these these payer plans um, I don't know if you have any numbers, but I mean, when you aren't on one of these plans, these are like the size of entire European countries, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Caremark, like CBS Caremark mm -hmm. is, is one of the biggest PBMs that is at play right now. And I, I was actually just looking at this today. Um, I think they have around between like 55 to 60 million lives that they cover. Okay. Um, so what that means and then like the the so what of that is that if you're a manufacturer and you're making a product and you want it to be covered if you don't get that coverage under cvs caremark for the pbm you have effectively blacklisted yourself from about a sixth of the u.s population mm -hmm. and that's you know one of four big players there so you have to kind of tread lightly because these companies are so leveraged 
with the amount of patients that they have. And again, that's why they're able to get like the discounts that they can, because, you know, at a certain point, if they're saying, you know, 50% discount, take it or leave it, or else we're going to exclude you from formulary. If you're a young manufacturer and you have, you know, shareholders to report to, you can't come back to them and say, you know, we're blacklisted from like a sixth of the market right now. Like that's just not going to fly. So yeah. you have to take that discount and just go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, thanks for clarifying that. They, they just have tremendous uh, leverage and, and power. Um, and they're just like, you know, private companies. Um, really, really uh, interesting. Um, so I, I do want to sort of, Actually, before I kind of do transition to the chronic kidney disease um, space that you work in, and I wanted to ask you some questions about that. Um, I am curious what some of this, um, you know, you mentioned some of the problems with the system. I'm curious um, what some of your sort of ideas for opportunity, this, this uh, ripeness for opportunity that you mentioned. Um, like, where do you think some of the improvements will come in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, yeah. So, that's a really good question. And um, I, I wish I had all the answers. <laughs> so I'll just kind of give like a, a eye in the sky sort of idea. But yeah. I think that, you know, it, it, it's kind of mostly like a talk situation right now. Um, I think a lot of people talk about like value-based care, value-based contracting and things like that. I think that one of the areas that I would expect to see grow and, and really make a difference in the industry over time is going to be any sort of, you know, payer PBM or maybe even like a middleman that can kind of standardize this value-based contracting side of things um, and turn it into something that's not just kind of, you know, a, a hand wavy <laughs> thing to say, you know, we're a value-based organization, um, but we've essentially structured this contract to look essentially exactly like our other ones. Okay. Um, and I think that's what you'll find a lot of the time is that the risk is really important when it comes to these value-based contracts. And it, it really depends how you kind of turn that knob on who is more at risk um, because someone is going to lose in that agreement, uh, whether they want you to believe it or not. Either the manufacturer is going to get screwed um, with the contracting terms or the payer is going to get screwed on the contracting terms. And I think that, you know, these value-based contracts give a little bit of, you know, a, a little bit of a, like a ceiling and a floor to work with in terms of, of the risk, but someone is ultimately going to lose. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, an area that is really ripe for opportunity there is just some sort of company, some sort of organization that can standardize those value-based contracting decisions. Because as of right now, um, companies really don't have the capability to do it. Um, they don't, like, don't understand what sort of outcomes are important. They don't understand how to measure the outcomes. So if there's any way for a company to integrate with a payer to get that data that they need to work with the two to independently come up with terms that are you know, equitable for both of them and to be able to do it at a cost that's fair, I think that that's an area that should grow over time and, and one where I would really you know, hope for it to grow over time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so too. And it, it's it's interesting the way you describe it and the way I've heard it being described is it's like, it really is one of those, um, I don't know if zero sum is the right word, um, but 
um, where one person's, you know, cost is another person's revenues. Um, and it's, it's just like, um, it, it's just sort of an interesting thing because it basically comes down to who has more pull. Um, so uh, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about chronic kidney disease and uh, not necessarily the specific, uh, specifics of what you're doing over at Akibia because I don't want to, um, you know, get into your, 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 uh, your work and what you can and can't talk about and things like that. But uh, I am kind of curious, like for people who don't know about anemia and chronic kidney disease, obviously, if you're like a medical professional listening to this, you might know about it. But for, for anyone else, like it's, it's very counterintuitive that something like kidney disease causes anemia. Like they just don't seem related. I was, uh, I was hoping you could sort of tell us why that is that, that uh, CKD causes anemia. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I think that uh, mechanistically it makes a lot of sense. So anemia and CKD at, at first glance seem like they're completely unrelated things. Um, in particularly because anemia pops up in, you know, many other different disease states, be it any sort of, you know, hematological illness you might have, like a, a cancer or sorts. Um, it can also be like idiopathic, like it might have no reason at all. Um, it could be iron deficiency that causes the anemia. Um, and so where it really comes into play for CKD, it's sort of like a, a multifactorial thing. And so the first is kind of what I mentioned before is that iron deficiency anemia. Um, so a lot of these patients are going to be iron deficient just because the way their body processes iron, um, it's just not, you know, it, it doesn't work well um, because these patients tend to be very inflamed. Um, I won't go too deep into it, but their body just doesn't process iron correctly. And so it mm -hmm. tends to store iron in the wrong places and doesn't leave any sort of free iron able to be used by, you know, the red blood cells to have the proper amount. Um, the other aspect, and, and one that people don't really realize too much, is that the kidneys are actually one of the main sources of epoetin uh, in the body. And so epoetin is going to be kind of this messenger in the body that tells the bone marrow, hey, we need to make more red blood cells. And so, you know, you're going to have kidneys, they're going to be failing over time. And so that means for the most part, like some of the cells are going to become fibro like fibrotic. Mm -hmm. And so those cells aren't going to be able to produce anything anymore. I mean, think of like a, if a pancreas decided that the cells are just going to become fibrotic, um, you're not going to be able to produce enough insulin for the body. And same sort of thing goes for the kidney with epoetin. And so when your kidney doesn't have enough epoetin to produce, you can't get it to the bone marrow. You don't have enough, you know, red blood cells to work with. And so you become anemic. And so, you know, when patients experience anemia, I think it's just like, I think it really solidified it. I took a tri trip to Denver recently and actually did like mountain biking on the first day that I was there. Um, and I think if I had to give anyone advice on what not to do in Denver on day one, it's like physical exercise <laughs> um, because like your body's not accustomed to that altitude. And so it's sort of the same feeling that you would get if you were an anemic patient. Um, you're just tired for no reason you're fatigued you feel out of breath you can't mm -hmm. do the things that you want to do and your quality of life is just shot and so i mean that's kind of you know what they're experiencing and you know i, I hope i didn't go in too much detail on the, on the mechanism of the uh the anemia pathway i, I feel like no. i get to describe that to customers all the time though <laughs> no no i'm i'm really glad you described it like literally exactly the way you did because i um 
I actually just uh, when I was like kind of doing some research on um, these uh, uh, hypoxia inducible factor prolylhydrolase inhibitor drugs, <laughs> um, which we can Mouthful. talk about. Um, I, you know, my understanding is that they actually work in a way that exactly relates to what you talked about, which is going up to high altitude. Um, I don't know if that's wrong, but um, my understanding is they sort of leverage this, um, these uh, signaling pathways in the body that are activated at high altitude, which cause some of those effects that, that you just described when, when you're at high altitude. Is that true? Is there these, these drugs, uh, one of which is being developed by Akibia, but also by other companies? Um, do they sort of leverage that high altitude environment in any way? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the mechanism behind, you know, how they work is actually really cool um, because what it ultimately does is to trick your body. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you're going to feel normal, but what it's going to do is to trick your body into thinking that it's in a hypoxic environment. And so you can consider, you know, it's going to trick your body into thinking, you know, I'm on a mountain in Denver right now. Mm -hmm. I have to go into overdrive producing hemoglobin. And so it just kind of, you know, switches, uh, you know, the knob on your body's ability to produce red blood cells and just kind of, you know, tricks, like tricks the uh, like gene transcription aspect of it. So it's really cool in, in that, right, I think. Yeah. Um, and th so the genes being transcribed, are these related to, which you also described, is that EPO, EPO EPOEDEN? Exactly. So yeah. the current like standard of care right now is really just kind of like direct, like exogenous EPO. So it mm -hmm. comes in, you know, a variety of different forms. Like EPOGEN is like the, the original uh, like EPO drug made by Amgen back in like, I think the 80s at this point. So it, it's kind of a, a pretty solidified drug at this point. Um, I believe biosimilars have come out for it at this point as well. So mm -hmm. um, very mature product, but that's just kind of this like direct hit on the EPO receptor to produce those red blood cells. And this just kind of, you know, takes it to a little bit more of like a, a physiological mechanism for it. So mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting in that, right? Um, and that's just kind of like how they work on a very simplistic way. Yeah, I, I also understand EPO, uh, this exogenous EPO is like a performance enhancing drug. <laughs> I, I guess like uh, <laughs> athletes use it to get more blood to their muscles when they're, you know, pumping iron and things like that. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about that, but um, I, I, I learned about it when I think uh, like a UFC fighter got banned for taking EP, uh, EPO. And yeah, so that's actually what um, like some athletes will do when they're like doping, like they'll take like EPO. Mm -hmm. Um, like days before a competition and then like they just have like tons of red blood cells so they can yeah. like work even harder um, oh yes that's it, what it is yes they fatigue like wait yeah sorry go ahead yeah exactly and then um one of the kind of funnier things when i first started i got in a meeting and they were kind of talking about you know different things that were going on in the company and whatnot and one of the things they talked about they were like oh we sent off you know samples to uh you know, a company that does like drug testing. And I was like, oh, why did they do that? And they're like, oh, well, they're kind of worried that they're going to use like that that for like Olympic doping or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they're I like, was, we I have to have curious. like assays. What's that? So they, they like, they have to have like the assays ready to go to be able to like test for it when the drug hits the market. So in case like people do decide to abuse it, like they'll have a way to test for it. Yeah, that I didn't realize that. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty funny. Um, 
And by the way, uh, for anyone listening, vetaducet is, is not to be used as a performance enhancing drug. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, we might actually have to cut some of this. Yeah, yeah that's um, totally fine. Um, cool, cool. But I, I was reading an article like before this and it was, um, um, it was talking, <laughs> we're going like straight down the performance enhancing drug rabbit hole, but it was talking <laughs> about how some of the medical benefits actually of, of these newer drugs are less advantageous for performance enhancing because of their like longer, uh, actually, no, not, so not uh, these, these uh, HIF, uh, hypoxia, you know, hypoxia inducible factor drugs, but, um, but the, there's a, there's a, a longer half-life version of EPO, which is essentially not good for people who do want to dope because it stays in the body way too long. Um, but I think is, is more the current standard now for, for anemia treatment. So it was like interesting exactly, yeah. that the older drugs, um, you know, just a straight exogenous EPO um, is actually more used for, for performance enhancement. Whereas, um, what is it called? Darp, Darpoetin? Darp, Darpoetin? <laughs> yeah, Darpoetin. It's, okay. like it's just like a longer half-life version. Yeah. And uh, just like a fun fact as well, and I think it was like one of the things I learned in pharmacy school is like um, beta blockers, particularly like metoprolol, are actually like on a list of like um, performance enhancing drugs oh, yeah. um, specific to like archery. So if you're an archer, you're not allowed to take beta blockers, which I oh. thought was like fascinating. Oh, because it probably slows down your, your breathing and... Uh, maybe you can focus more. It negates the effect of like it negates the effect of like adrenaline. So if you have like shaky ah, hands when you're yeah. uh, an archer, it'll keep you like still hands. Ah, interesting. Maybe snipers sh should use beta blockers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, um, yeah. So I want to I want to talk more about um, it's it's kind of funny. Like some people refer to these things as uh, market access, as we described it earlier. Um, and other people say patient access and like, is there a difference and is it just terminology? Um, you know, isn't the patient, the, the market ultimately in terms of the final user of the, these, uh, pharmaceutical products? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question and a, a good distinction as well. And I think that, you know, for the most part, I think you'll hear a lot of people just say access, uh, mm -hmm. when they talk about this like functional area and, you know, when they're talking about market access, I find that, you know, oftentimes it's, it's dealing with like the formularies and things like that. Um, patient access tends to be more like patient access programs. Um, there's like copay programs, patient support, free drug, bridge programs, things like that. Um, but like ultimately they, you know, fall under the same wheelhouse of we're trying to get patients on drug. It's kind of just like a different perspective of you know, am I trying to flip the switch on the market or am I trying to flip the switch on a patient behavior, you know? Okay. Um, so what are some examples of, of ways you uh, like flip the switch on patient behavior? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this is like one of the things that I got to do pretty frequently in my last job in consulting is, you know, what is like the patient psychology and behavior and, and how do you influence that from a manufacturer's perspective? And, you know, one of the things that's really cool is that, you know, patients are, for the most part, like any other rational consumer, um, they have price points and they have, you know, for the most part, you know, pretty elastic price points when it comes to when they're going to buy and when they're going to walk away from it. 
And so it's kind of the manufacturer's job to figure out, you know, what are those price points we have to work with? So I know we talked earlier about coinsurances and things like that. Um, you know, if we find out that a patient is getting a hundred dollar drug and, you know, their copay is going to be $10. And let's say, you know, this patient just really does not want to shell out $10 for this prescription. They're going to walk away from it. And so, you know, that manufacturer is going to be able to potentially see if they have data coming in that this patient came in, they saw a price of $10 and they walked away from it. And so this is kind of the aspect of like where data comes into these decisions is, you know, we have so much data around claims and you'd be actually very surprised to see what sort of data comes in for uh, claims data. Um, and we can kind of understand what sort of process that patient went through in each step. And, you know, did they see the price? Did they get the price lowered um, with some sort of copay program? And if that lowered price, did they, you know, pick it up or did they walk away? And so if you can find out somehow that lowering that price for that patient will make them pick up that drug, that's really valuable information. And it, what's more valuable than that is, you know, if you're a manufacturer and you understand if we lower the price point, they're going to pick up the drug. So if you're a non-data-driven organization, you're going to say, okay, that patient had a $10 copay, make it zero. That patient's going to pay zero dollars. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of these patients are going to see that zero dollar price point and they're going to pick up. Yeah. And what the savvy manufacturer can do is they can say, you know, we found the price point at six dollars and that's the price point at which most patients walk away. So okay. if we can get most patients down below six, then we're still going to keep the patients that we want to keep. And at the same time, we're not going to be losing $6 on every prescription. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is kind of, again, where that clinical aspect meets that more business aspect. Obviously, you want those patients to get on therapy because they need the therapy. Um, but at the end of the day, there is a business aspect to it. And there is an ROI, a return on investment aspect um, that you have to keep in mind when it comes to these programs. You know, some of these programs are just bleeding money, um, and some of them are actually really good at making sure to keep patients on while, you know, staying very sustainable over time. Mm -hmm. um, is there, so is there any aspect of, uh, like, patient assistant programs, um, and maybe they're different than patient access programs. Um, I think you, you brought up several examples of where the terminology is not standardized and uh, who knows what means what, but you kind of have to use context clues. Um, but I, I mean, is there any aspect of patient assistant programs that, that doesn't necessarily have that business aspect in mind, like where they're just giving away free drug um, to patients who can't afford it, for example, in, in uh, you know, certain circumstances, maybe more of a charitable cause? Um, is there, is, and I, I know these things exist, but I guess how do they decide when to do that? Is it just a certain amount they allocate each year? Uh, do you have any insight onto those free drug programs that, that companies do, uh, run? Um, yeah, so I, I think it's a good question. I, I think that, you know, a lot of the patient programs you'll see out there, um, they tend to have some sort of aspect of like free drug, and that tends to be for more underinsured or uninsured patients. 
And typically what you'll find there is that they look for, you know, is this patient below like the federal poverty line or something like that, at which point, you know, that patient may be getting free drug. Um, and so that's one of those aspects there where it is, you know, technically like charitable. Um, and the aspect that I would definitely like add there is that, you know, these companies are going to be taking that, you know, some percent of drug that's given away is free. Um, they're probably going to be considering that in their pricing. So if, you know, you have a list price of X, uh, but you're going to give away, you know, 5% of your product for free, you know, as a manufacturer, you're probably going to up the original list price by a little bit to account for the fact that you are going to be giving away some percentage of the drug, like absolutely for free. Gotcha. The other aspect to like free drug programs, and you'll hear them called like bridge programs every now and again, is like a little bit less charitable in the way that it works. Um, you'll find that like manufacturers will give out free product uh, for like a set period of time, say like a month or two months or three months or even up to like a year in some cases. And the idea behind those is that they're typically newer products. Like they've just hit the market. They're trying to get patients on drug and to get them as consistent patients going forward. But what they're trying to do with that strategy is to get the patients on and hope that they're going to get insurance coverage in the next year or so. Okay. So at that point, you're kind of building up this own, your own leverage as a manufacturer to be able to go to the payers and say, you know, you already have, you know, say 10, 20,000 patients on this product. You really need to cover it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, these patients are going to be, you know, without the product because we can't keep this bridge program going. Mm -hmm. It's like a free sample at, at Sam's Club or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now it's time to buy the whole box. Um, um, Okay, well, um, that's it for, for today, Sam. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I, think, I think there's so many different aspects of, of this area, just access, pricing, um, pricing for, for whom, um, because there's so many different uh, times where dollar bills seem to exchange hands in, in this market. Um, and I think just talking to someone like you, helps to clarify a lot of the information that you read online or, or in a book or, or what have you. Um, it just doesn't make sense until you hear it explained by, by someone who knows what's going on. So I really thank you for that. And um, yeah, do you, you got anything else you wanted to say? No, I mean, thanks again for uh, having me on the show today, Mo. I think this is an awesome opportunity. And uh, I think that you're going to get a lot of guests because your questions are uh, really insightful and get us going. So thanks again for having me on, man. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that so much, man. And it's been, it's been an honor. I, I hope to have you on again. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you learned something from Sam, as I always do. Um, please check out the show notes for all the relevant links and don't be afraid to like, share, and subscribe. Okay now, take care.